You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, if you have got your Bibles, I would love you to keep them open at Revelation chapter 6 and 7, that passage that we read together. Um, I thought I would just follow on, you see, from what I've been doing with you, looking at that second coming discourse of Jesus uh, in Matthew 24 and 25, to take you to the book of Revelation, which of course uh, also brings us to his second coming and to the day of judgment and so on. Uh, And we see it here in in these verses. Let me just say a little word about the book of Revelation, first of all, uh, before we look at this particular passage. And when we have looked at this passage, I hope you'll understand it. I hope you'll be able to go home and and read it yourself and say, yes, I see what that's saying now. I I see uh, what it's trying to teach us. A little word about the, the title, Book of Revelation. What is it? It's a revelation. It's not meant to be a puzzle. It's not meant to be a conundrum. It's not meant to be something that's difficult. It's meant to be what it says. Do you, do you remember way years ago? Um, I think it was for a fence treatment of some sort or other. And this rather st- stern looking guy held up the tin and he says, it does what it says on the tin. Do you remember that advert? I'm hopeless at adverts, but I do remember that one. Well, I believe this book does what it says in the title. It's a revelation. But you need to understand how to read it. Because it's not just straightforward literature. We have different sorts of literature, even in our uh, society today. You know, we have uh, what we call prose just straightforward telling something that's happened. Read your newspaper and you hope you get a straightforward reading of some event that took place. We have poetry, of course, which you have to read differently. When I read, I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or vale and hill, I don't expect to be up over the clouds or anything like that. That's poetry. Uh, We have, uh, of course, um, stories. We have fiction. So you know that you're not reading something that actually happened. It's just a story that someone is telling. We have have different sorts of of literature. We have fairy stories and and, uh, things like that as well. Well, back in Bible times, they had different sorts of literature too. They had poetry, like the Psalms, for example. The book of Revelation is called apocalyptic literature. And you need to understand it when you come to this book. Basically, it's it's literature that was common and well-known at the time of Jesus where the writer uses rather strange images and and numbers in a very symbolic way. That's basically it. So when you come to strange images and you come to numbers in the book of Revelation, you don't treat them literally. They're symbolic. And and you need to understand that. That's the first thing to understand about this book. The second thing is that it's not written chronologically. Uh, You don't start at chapter 1 of Revelation and go through to chapter 22 thinking that this is telling you what's going to happen uh, from the time of Jesus when he left this world until the time he comes back again. No, the book of Revelation actually takes us on a number of occasions. It takes us right up to the day of judgment. And we'll see that here in chapter 6. But then it goes back again. And then it takes us up to the day of judgment again and again. So it's not something that you treat chronologically, as if it's telling us things as they happened in order. So, let's have a look at the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. Now, we've already read these verses, 
and uh, it's chapter 7 I really want to turn your thoughts to, but I, I didn't make the point there, the end of chapter 6, where the sixth seal was open. I had briefly said to you that these seals were just a, a picture way of saying that Jesus was revealing to John what was going to happen in the future through seven seals altogether. And we come up to the sixth one here at the end of chapter 6. And you have no difficulty, I'm sure, in understanding that this brings us up to the end of time, to the judgment day. The, the language is, is so stark, isn't it? There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. Verse 12, verse 13. Or the moon turned blood red. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. Well, this is pretty, this is pretty uh, apocalyptic stuff, isn't it? This, this is not something that happens every day. The sky, verse 14, receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And if you're not sure exactly what he's talking about, you just read on. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich and the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks and the mountains, and called on the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, that's Jesus, of course, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? This is judgment day that we're brought up to here, isn't it? The great day of the wrath. And who can stand? By the way, that's an interesting little phrase, who can stand? You find similar phrases in other places in the Bible. We referred this morning to Romans, Romans chapter 14 and 10. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But how will we stand? Or who can stand with confidence before the judgment seat of Christ? Who can stand? Do you remember the psalmists asked that question in more than one place? Psalm, Psalm 24, for example. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. He founded it upon the seas, he established it upon the hills. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? How can we ever hope to stand before a holy God? Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, were to mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? And of course, the answer to that is no one could possibly stand before a holy God unless our sin is dealt with. That's what the gospel, in a sense, is all about. Well, at the end of chapter 6 then, we've come up to the judgment day with that question. The great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Good question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Have we the hope of standing before God on that day? Bold shall I stand in that great day. I think it was Zinzendorf who wrote a hymn back in the 18th century. Bold shall I stand in that great day, and who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved from these I am, from guilt and sin and fear and shame. Zinzendorf, the early Moravian preacher, he could look forward to the day of judgment because his sins have been dealt with. Who shall stand before a holy God on that day? But let's move on into chapter 7. What would you expect to see next then in this book? We've been brought right up to the day of judgment, haven't we? What would you expect to see next? Well, I'll tell you what you find next in chapter 7. You find two things. First of all, you find that this judgment is held back for a time. You would think that perhaps 
after that last verse of chapter 6, the great day of the wrath has come, that you would then have an account of God judging the nations. But no, instead, the day of judgment, the day of God's wrath, in a sense, is held back. We'll look at that in a moment. And then in the second part of the chapter, we get a glimpse into heaven to see the great multitude of people who are there. Who are they and how have they come there? So let's think of those two things, judgment held back and then the redeemed in heaven whom John sees. Judgment held back. The Bible often talks about the wrath of God as it does here at the end of verse uh, of chapter 6. Uh, John the Baptist, for example, uh, he, he speaks in, in John's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 36, he speaks of the wrath of God abiding on unbelievers. It's a powerful image, that, isn't it? The image I, I get of that is of a, a huge, dark cloud of wrath hanging above us, ready to burst at any time. The wrath of God, John says, abides on unbelievers. Unbelievers don't understand the seriousness of their situation. God's wrath, ready to burst on them, as it were. Or, or Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul uh, speaks of the wrath of God being revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness of man. God's wrath is, is, is already being revealed. When you see natural disasters, when you see uh, judgment coming upon nations or individuals, that's God's wrath already being revealed and pointing us forward to the final day of his wrath which will come, and that's what chapter 6 and verse 17 has brought us up to. But then, we see in chapter 7, verse 1, four angels standing to the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. And another angel comes up from the east, having the seal of God, and calls out in a loud voice to the four angels who have been given power to harm the land and the sea, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees, until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And what we see here is this wrath of God, which is about to burst on mankind, as it were, God's final judgment, it's held back. The picture is of four angels at the four corners of the earth. Now, that's just the way the book of Revelation describes the whole world. Uh, this, this whole world and all its inhabitants will one day be gathered before God in judgment. But John is saying that, uh, as it were, four angels at the four corners of the earth are holding back God's judgment in the form of a wind. Stop the wind from blowing on the land or the sea. Now, he's not talking there about a gentle breeze. He's talking about a wind, a hurricane, a, a violent wind that wrecks and, and creates havoc. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on their forehead. Called on the four angels who have been given power to harm the land and the sea. Don't let it happen. Keep this destructive judgment wind back, as it were. Keep Hold back the judgment for a while. Hold back the judgment for a while. A delay in judgment. Well, is there a delay in God's judgment? In one sense, no, there's not. God has set a day. Paul said, right into, uh, preaching to the men of Athens, he has set a day in which he will judge the world by Jesus Christ and given proof of this by raising him from the dead. The day of judgment is set. 
But from a human perspective, it seems to be delayed. And, and Peter tells us in those verses that we read at the beginning of our, our service why it's been delayed. Because God wants men and women to repent. He is patient with us and wanting men and women to repent. And so that day will not come, Revelation tells us, until all God's servants have been sealed. Do you see that language? I saw another angel coming out from the east, verse 2, or 3, 2, having the seal of the living God. And in verse 3 he said, Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. What does that mean? What's a seal? Well, we're perhaps not so familiar with seals now as maybe past generations were. But a seal is just something that, that um, is used, well, really in three different ways. It, it it's, speaks of protection, it speaks of ownership, and it speaks of genuineness. Like protection, for example. Do you remember when Jesus was buried and a stone rolled across the grave and Pilate instructed the soldiers to seal the stone? Why? He wanted to protect the body of Jesus so that no one could steal it. That's what the Jews were saying his disciples are going to come and steal it. Well, you protect it. You put the stone over and seal the stone. Protect it. But the other figure that the seal speaks of is ownership. Ownership. Song of Solomon, chapter 8 and verse 6, for example. It's a, a marriage scene, and, and uh, the one lover is saying to the other, Place me like a seal over your heart. Place me like a seal over your heart. Basically saying, I belong to you. You own me. We own each other. We, are, we belong to each other. The Lord knows those who are his. We belong to him. He seals us. And the other, the other symbolism of a seal is genuineness. You perhaps are a bit more familiar with this, although it doesn't happen now. But in past days, I suppose, you know, if a king wanted to send a message to one of his subjects, he would put the message in, in a, a, an envelope or something like that and put wax on it and then stamp it with a seal so that the recipient knew this was genuine. It was from the king. Ownership, genuineness, protection. Don't harm the land or the sea. Hold the judgment back until all the children of God are sealed. All those whom God owns, as it were, all who are his children, all whom he protects, all who are genuine children of God, until they're all sealed. In other words, the judgment will not come until every last child of God is sealed, brought into his kingdom. That's when Jesus will come again, when his church is complete. There'll not be one, not be one child of God, not one whom God has chosen from all eternity, not one will be missing. All those whom he has sealed will be gathered home, and then, and then only, judgment will come. Now, now the book of Revelation goes on to say that the number of those who were sealed was 144,000. Now, You've heard me say already, I hope you remember it. Don't take these numbers literally. Jehovah's Witnesses have done that, for example. They'll say that that 144,000 is just the 144,000 chief Jehovah's Witnesses who will be in a new heaven, and everybody else, they say, will be in a new earth. 
No, they've misread the Scriptures. This is just a symbolic, complete number. I, I, I may be wrong in, in how you would get to this number, but I suggest to you, and this is not uh, something that I would want you to, to be taken as, as, uh, as something that's absolutely certain. It's just my idea about this number. But 12 by 12 is 144. The Old Testament church was built on 12 tribes of Israel. The New Testament church built on 12 apostles. Put them together, you get 144. 10 is another round number in, in, the, book, in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And, and 10 by 10 by 10, 10 cubed gets you 1,000. 144,000. It's just a complete number. That's just the complete church of God. I think that's all it is. So, judgment's held back until the church is complete. But then John tells us about something else. He gives, gives us a glimpse into heaven from verse 9 onwards. I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could number. By the way, isn't it interesting? He says 144,000, a few verses up. And now he says it's a great number that no one can number. No one, that is, of course, except God. A great number? Do you remember Jesus when he was speaking of the broad and the narrow way? He said, broad is the way uh, that leads to destruction. Many there be that go in thereat. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Only a few find it. Only a few. And yet here it's a great number. Well, I think the answer to that is very simple, really. You look out in our country, you look at our world. Are most people believers or not? Of course they're not. True believers are a very small number. Only a few find the narrow way. But when you put them all together, down through the ages, from the beginning of time, down through the Old Testament and right up to now, when you put them all together from every nation on earth, it will indeed be a great number. Small compared to unbelievers, but still a great number. So let's think of these people in heaven. Who are they? Who are they? Well, we're told that they're from every nation, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. I remind you again, I, I don't like the speak, to speak of uh, different races. I believe there's only one human race but many different nationalities. And we're being told here that these people in heaven are from every nation and every tribe and people and language. Go into all the world, Jesus said to his disciples. And in a sense, that has happened. I don't think there's a part of the world now where the gospel hasn't been heard in some form or another. Not that everyone has heard, but the gospel has gone into every corner of the earth. We're told that they have white robes. They are pure. They're clean. Uh, and we're told also, of course, at the end of verse 14, that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These people in heaven are those who have been to the cross, They're those who have, have truly repented of their sin and truly trusted in Christ, and they've been washed, they've been cleansed. As the psalmist said in Psalm 51, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And that cleansing only comes through the substitutionary death of Christ upon the cross. They've come from every tribe and nation, 
They have white robes. They have palm branches in their hands. They are worshiping God. Remember Palm Sunday, for example, a picture of worship. And they stand before the throne and the Lamb. They're in perfect communion again with God and with the Lamb. It's quite simple, isn't it, when you look at it that way? Three other questions about this multitude. Where have they come from? Well, we've already been told that they came from every nation and tribe and people and so on. But we're also told that they come out of great tribulation. You see, the, the question was asked by one of the elders in verse 13. One of the elders asked me, John says, those in white robes, these people that you see in heaven, who are they and where do they come from? John doesn't really know. He turns the, the question back to him. Sir, you know, verse 14, and then this elder says, these are they who have come out of great tribulation, washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We've already touched on that, washing their robes. They've been cleansed. They've been purified through the precious blood of Christ. They're trusting truly in him. What does it mean they've come out of great tribulation? There are some people who would say that uh, there's a, a time of great tribulation to come uh, just before Jesus returns and again uh, at his second coming. But there is a sense in which every Christian passes through great tribulation. Jesus told us that the, war that we, the world that we live in will be a world that is troubled with wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and so on. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. If the world hates me, he said, it will hate you. Paul said to the churches in Asia Minor at the end of his first missionary journey, it's through much tribulation that you will enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, tribulation, trials, troubles, it's really the lot of every believer. We have had it so easy in our country over a few centuries now, but that's not the norm. The norm down through the centuries has been the persecution of the Christian church. Every Christian has come through tribulation in one form or another. There may be a, a period of special tribulation toward the end of time. I don't know. But every Christian must face it in some way or another. So these people then in heaven, they've washed their robes. They've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have come through a world full of tribulation. They've come to the end of their life. They're now in glory. What are they doing? And they're worshiping God day and night in his temple, we are told. Worshiping him day and night in his temple. They're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. The work of heaven will be to worship God. They'll also reign with him. Isn't that an amazing thing? We worship him, but we will also reign with him and serve him. And we see their song here in, in this particular chapter, in verse 10, what are they singing? Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. It's a song of Psalm 98 that I read this morning. Salvation belongs to our, throne, our God. And the elders and angels and living creatures around the throne, they also sang. Verse 12, Amen. Praise and honor and glory and wisdom and thanks and power and strength be to our God, who lives forever and ever. Heaven will be a place of praise and worship and singing. Where do they come from? We've seen that. What are they doing? Worshiping, serving God. Finally, what's God doing for them? 
And this is a lovely picture from verse 15 onwards. They're before the throne of God, serve him day and night in his temple. That's what they're doing. What's he doing? He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's a lovely picture this. Spread his tent over them. I think you get a glimpse of that in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. You know the story of Ruth? Remember Ruth, a Moabitess, who came as a, as a young widow with her elderly mother back to Bethlehem, and they were destitute. They had no means of support. But it was harvest time, and they had a, a, a relative, a, someone who was a relative of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. And Naomi had this plan that Ruth would introduce herself to him. His name was Boaz, and see if he would help them. You remember the story that Ruth went down in the evening time and Boaz was asleep by the pile of grain in the threshing floor and he woke up in the middle of the night and discovered Ruth there and said, who are you? And you remember what she said? I am your servant, Ruth. I don't have any claim on you, is what she was saying in those words. I don't have any claim. But she said, then spread the corner of your garment over me for you are a kinsman, redeemer. What was she asking him to do there? Spread the corner of your garment over me. She was asking him to marry her, to give her a home, to provide for her, to protect her. She wanted all of that. Spread the corner of your garment. Again, I, we don't see this nowadays. We've all got cars and, and uh, so on. We, we're not often out walking in, in terribly stormy weather and so on. But imagine... In, past times, perhaps a father and a little toddler alongside him and they're caught in a cloud burst and maybe they're standing close to a building and the father wraps his coat around the little one to protect him or her, to keep him dry, to keep him from the elements. Protection, provision, safety. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Give me a home. Well, the same idea is here in Revelation 7. Revelation 7, he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over his people. He will give them a home, an eternal home. He will provide for them eternally. They will be eternally safe and protected. They won't hunger anymore, or thirst anymore. The sun, the eastern scorching sun, will not beat upon them or any scorching heat. And the Lamb, Jesus, their Savior, at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. The lamb will be the shepherd. Earlier on we saw the lamb was like a lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah was the, the lamb of God. Now the lamb is the shepherd. He's both. The lamb of God is the shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water, picture of eternal life. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. So much so that there will never again be any possibility of tears. Do you get the flow of that chapter? End of chapter 6. The day of God's wrath has come. Who will stand? Are we going to see that wrath poured out? No, no. It's held back. Four angels holding back those strong, destroying winds. Until when? 
until all the redeemed are sealed, until every last child of God is redeemed and brought into the kingdom. And then the judgment will come. But John then takes our view off that and shows us heaven, this great multitude that no one could number from every kindred, tribe, and nation. They've all washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They've all been saved by the grace of God. They've all been washed in the blood of Jesus. They're all trusting in Christ crucified and him alone. They're all praising God with the angels, of course, serving God. They're before his throne and he spreads his tent over them. He gives them an eternal home. He gives them all the protection and all that they need throughout all of eternity and wipes away every tear from their eyes. Are we among those who have been sealed? Have we known the cleansing of the blood of Christ? Have we been washed in his precious blood? Only then can we hope to stand before his throne. Only then can we hope to be covered by his tent, as it were, and know the joy of the redeemed throughout all eternity. May that be our hope. Let's bow together for prayer. Mm -hmm.